0: Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Welcome to Next Economy Now. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lift Economy, and I'm here uh, at episode 100 with my business partner, Kevin Bayuk, We uh, started this podcast in November 2015, so over two years. And uh, it's been 100 episodes, so we thought we'd do a, a reprise of our sort of episode, but with some slight variations towards, you know, the, the sort of lift vision and the origin of the, of the, the team at Lift Economy and what we had hoped to accomplish. Because a lot of folks over the years have asked us, you know, what is, Lyft and why why is your mission to create, model, and share a locally self-reliant economy that works for the benefit of all life? Not many companies have an aspirational mission like that. So Kevin and I thought today we could give listeners a little bit of a backdrop to that. And so I'm here with uh, Kevin, who is a co-founder and partner and worker owner at Lyft. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Ryan.
1: 100 Uh, episodes. All right.
0: 100 episodes. So we thought, uh, you know, maybe, I don't think many folks know your background, you know, we do this with every guest. So maybe in broad strokes, you know, just talking a little bit about your background, maybe up through your tech company to talk to folks about how you came to this sort of interest in permaculture in the next economy.
1: All right, we'll dive back and through to the, the tech era. And I guess the setting is the, the Bay area in the mid nineties, kind of the Netscape had just kind of happened and there were a lot of young people making money And at that time, I was living with some friends who we had an intention to make movies, but none of us had any money. Uh, And so being young and naive, we said, well, okay, I made an agreement with them. You learn how to make movies and I'll go make money so that we can make movies. Movies about, I don't know, broad concepts around the social ecological crisis that was happening in the world and, you know, the stories that could share a vision for a different world. And so I started uh, getting into technology and entrepreneurship, discovering very arcane knowledge, things that I never wanted to know. How do you raise venture capital? How do you hire hundreds of people and scale up? And, you know, in the early days of the web, uh, commerce, what's a sticky GUI? Literally, we talked about sticky GUIs, graphical user interfaces, for those of you who are not familiar with a sticky GUI. And, you know, I was involved in that for a number of years and had some interesting experiences, but never made one of those movies that I was really passionate about trying to and aspiring to make to share and some friends introduced me to ecosystemic design and permaculture and over a little short period of time I had a, a transition where I you know sold my home sold my car radically simplified my life, and started a deep exploration of Things that I was excited about. I I was the transition that was happening in my life was moving from a kind of depression and overwhelm of I think cynicism and resignment about the state of the world where all I saw was problems and suffering, to one to a worldview where I saw a tremendous number of opportunities to solve problems. And the solutions or the ways of addressing those problems suddenly became self-evident and almost embarrassingly simple. And so I wanted to become really literate, and I, f- I found a passion for researching, exploring, integrating, sharing about solutions, dedicating myself to a vision for, you know, what, how could you create a world that works for everyone with no one left out, for, for all life? Uh, what would that world look like? And how would it become manifest? What are the things that people would do to make that happen, or not do, as the case may be? It was around that time, uh, in that part of my life, where I met Sean Barry. He had started an NGO called uh, the Urban Alliance for Sustainability, and we were operating as a kind of a collective or a cooperative, and developing our, our mission, our theory of change, and seeing how we could inspire a movement of solutions, uh, as we talked about it at the time. And we tried a number of things and learned a lot, but that that's as around that time where we started talking about the next economy.
0: Yeah. So the sort of uh, you, you had these sort of inclinations towards something different, and you met Sean, and then Sean had already started being interested in sort of business coaching and systems. How did the two of you actually decide what Lyft economy would look like, or you know, what were the resources or inspirations or how did you even decide on like company structure on those early days?
1: Yeah. Well, v- vision first, right? So in alignment first, uh, as we often share with the clients and organizations that we get to work with and partner with the Genesis of kind of our interest in business, um, and enterprise and economy as a, um, lever for change just comes out of some, you know, observations that might be self-evident to a lot of us. If you look around the world and you see suffering, whether it's environmental suffering and degradation, destruction, topsoil loss, species extinction, uh, gross emissions, climate change, um, every major ecosystem in the world is in radical decline. Or you know, human suffering, hunger, and, uh, thirst, and homelessness and um, poverty in general and, and inequity in the structural inequities of the world, it's not too far down of uh, an analysis where you kind of see the economic system, the system of the economy, which you know has popular expressions like corporations and the way capital works. But the system of the economy is one of the probably core causative agents, as far as we could tell. And so in the work that we were doing as a nonprofit with Sean, we found that some of the most exciting areas where we saw what we thought was like progress or change or transformation was happening when we were working with worker-owned cooperatives and local small businesses that were authentically dedicated to a vision for doing business completely different, different than the norm of how uh, an enterprise would offer uh, operate. How can we provide or offer needed goods and services to the world, provide our gifts, the things that we're passionate about that we're urgent about, but do it in a way that's just fundamentally different. Uh, non-compromising in terms of how could we be a benefit to the earth? How could we be a benefit to people, the people that we work with, the people that we partner with? And it turns out that's that's pretty hard to do. Uh, and we met a number of these entrepreneurs and courageous leaders who were trying to do that. And both Sean and I had uh, we had a an alignment for recognizing that the economy and business seemed to have this important role to play in transforming the larger cultural norms and social structures, and even the deeper story of, you know, who we are and identity as, as people to enable this world that works for everybody. And we became interested in this idea of, okay, how can we, how can we be of service to the emergence of that next economy? And the thing that stood out first and foremost was Sean, you said Sean was interested in, in kind of business coaching. He kind of recognized that uh, hit with his experience in running worker-owned cooperatives and running business that he was he, he was going to be able to be of service. Um, and I had similar experiences, and we met these entrepreneurs who were running these companies, and uh, by and large, they were passionate and dedicated, uh, but a lot, a lot of them we're missing some of the kind of experience experiences and knowledge about how to grow an enterprise or run a business or hire people or access resources or make decisions that are in alignment with their values when the default decisions are kind of along the lines of the business as usual economy. And so we said, well, okay, we know we can probably be of service and create value there. Let's, let's, let's try that on. But in doing so, what's, what's interesting, Ryan, right, is we were, we were researching and, and talking and, you know, spent a good amount of time charting out a pathway for what would the economy look like if it was working for the benefit of all life. And so we asked ourselves that question, and it's a really potent inquiry, I think. Uh, what would it look like in as much detail as possible? And in doing that, in kind of exploring that inquiry, we found we had to play with time quite a bit and di- dilate out through time uh, because it seems so distant from here uh, when there's just so much exploitation and suffering at the hands of business and enterprise. So we started talking about, well, let's, what would a 500 year plan be? What would the plan for an economy be that could create such a world that we can aspire towards? One of the things that really got us excited and motivated to work with people was, I, have you ever heard of that William Gibson quote, uh, you know, the, the future is here, but it's just not evenly distributed or something like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing for sure, yeah, but yeah. yeah, it was evident to us that the next economy isn't something that's just science fiction or fantasy. It's actually now, uh, it's just not everywhere. And so we, the first theory of change we had is, okay, let's start with helping those organizations that are already authentically dedicated to this higher principle, principled way of providing needed goods and services, help them become the ideal, as ideal as possible of an expression of that future world. And if we do our job well, they could be a model so that other enterprises and individuals could kind of follow their lead. They would create a draft that the next economy could kind of flow through and flow into or flow with. And that's, that's, that was kind of the genesis of lift Economy's vision. And we, we just built layers of specificity
0: of our vision on top of that. So you, you know, most external people haven't seen our vision articulation, but I think it's, Interesting. And I'm, I actually don't know all the reasons why there are certain choices made. So it's, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on some of these because, so there's five iterations, there's Lyft 1.0 to 5.0. And can you describe perhaps, so is Lyft 1.0 or, or did you already have this in mind in that first year with Sean? Or was this sort of added on as you went along? This idea of like what Lyft economy specifically would do?
1: A lot of it was there in the, that work, kind of, of visioning and, and setting intention about how we think we could be of service and what would serve us uh, and the kind of even the life aspirations that we have. And I'll go into some examples of how that plays out through the vision. But there's kind of a, you could say, a core theory of change in there that if there were more models of enterprises or organizations or groups of people who are providing needed goods and services in this non-compromising beneficial way that could be models that could be replicated and regionally adapted you could kind of imagine that there could be this locally self-reliant economy a bioregional economy for every region of the world that's largely self-reliant uh, obviously there would be exchange and, and, and exchange of ideas and, and sharing across regions um, and celebration of cultural diversity and regional diversity. But there'd be more resilience kind of built into each region. When you start thinking about an economy that does work for everybody, where no one's left out, you kind of get drawn into that idea. So how, how could you imagine getting there? So if you start with organizations that are already doing good work, uh, and have create models that pull more organizations into that, then there seems to be some barriers to creating more of those. Um, and some of the barriers I think we talked about maybe on the last time we did a podcast, one of them is what we call the price parity paradox. In short, in summary, if if you invest in people and invest in the planet while producing goods and services, your cost basis for providing goods or services tends to be higher than the business as usual economy that tends to exploit people and planet um, and have a lower cost basis. So it creates a paradox of how do you create a price parity? And I don't know if we talked about it last time, but there's, you know, Sean and I were looking at a number of ways to navigate through this paradox and, some of the what you describe as lift uh, what you mentioned there has 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0 and 5.0 or some of the the pathways through the price parity paradox some of those just in summary for example are looking at the cost of capital and capitalization and how it works in the business as usual economy if we could change the norms and the culture around capital to uh, act as a catalytic agent to enable these organizations to grow uh, or to start uh, then we can that would be one slice of reducing that that cost basis to enable pricing or market of goods and services closer to parity um, and then there's an idea of what if you did have these models of you know community supported kitchens or pick your model that were distributed everywhere around the world and imagine for a moment if they were federated and connected, and communicating and sharing, sharing in information and practices, sharing in learning, sharing in resources, sharing in maybe even supply relationships or in marketing relationships or connection relationships to people that they want to serve. There's a huge amount of power that could be uh, leveraged by this idea of <laughs> regionally replicable models of m- beneficial, socially and environmentally beneficial organizations providing needed goods and services that are federated and sharing. And so the lifts vision from just let's serve those entrepreneurs and organizations and individuals who are in the co-ops and so forth that are doing good work today evolved into, okay, well, once we've started helping them, let's change the way the nature of how capital intersects into engendering more of those organizations. And then let's federate those organizations so that they're able to have some more power parity with the business-as-usual economy. And there's more detail to it than that. Like you said, Ryan, if if, if uh, listeners haven't had the chance to read the Lyft 75-year vision statement articulation, then then uh, some of this will be just summary. But uh, there's, a,
0: there's a lot more detail there. So it went from this sort of lift 1.0 which is sort of consulting services around like vision strategy culture operations for existing enterprises that that are sort of already there and you want to help sort of be better businesses and then it's you know we've on the lift vision it talks about this sort of lift 2.0 which is now sort of dabbling in the capital impact capital accelerating and creating new companies can you talk about why, you know, why not just continue to help companies uh, who are already there and just grow those companies? Like why sort of raise money or, you know, what's what's the point of that?
1: Well, one is a kind of fairly practical consideration in that uh, Sean and I found ourselves in this uh, situation where we were helping Incoit or, you know, nascent organizations um, with extraordinarily powerful and um, audacious ideals and and, and vision. And uh, we would meet with them and there would be a, a, just a massive amount of alignment and uh, this pursuit of mutual support. Hey, we, should, we need your help. And we'd say, we'd love to help you. And then, you know, Sean and I would dig into the organization and say, wow, there's absolutely no resources here, no cash. Um, and uh, Sean and I want to help you Uh, but fee-for-service doesn't make sense for us to actually be consultants at at the stage you're at. Um, And that happened a lot. So we we did a lot of pro bono work in supporting these small organizations to help them at these early stages. And so one thing, uh, and in doing so, there's some consistent observations. You know, for example, some of the most inspiring organizations we worked with were founded by women or persons of color. And, you know, by observing their experiences, we saw that oftentimes there was a either outright or at least a residual kind of categorical exclusion of those entrepreneurs from kind of the capital stack by either investment culture or, you know, again, these residual structural racism, racism and structural sexism kind of barriers. Uh, and we, and even if, even if it was an organization that could access capital, the, the, their, their choices to prioritize impact and, and, and value creation uh, for their, you know, their supply chain, doing the most regenerative, beneficial thing in their supply chain, or their choices to invest in their people and, and be a model of personal growth and development for the, for the people that they were bringing into the organization as team members, those choices were antithetical to the kind of constructs that the mandates of capital uh, the capital that might have been available for them, even if they had this amazingly innovative good or service that was going to be high impact, a lot of the capital out there was saying, "Well, you got to have outsized growth and um, provide, you know, liquidity on a short time frame and a return profile that's conforming with our expectations that we've set for our limited investment partners and so forth." And those created additional barriers. So there, there's, it's an emergent thing in, in in the impact investment marketplace. There is there are others, but we saw a need to kind of add to the mix of what, what, what role could we play to helping define or even model again, um, set an example of how capital could work for these organizations that ha- were more modest in their growth ambitions um, and also way more authentic in their dedication to impact. Where's the capital for them? Um, and how simultaneously could we create a more or model a more diverse and inclusive economy and so both the practical considerations of how do we grow the capacity of these organizations so that they might be able to pay us fee for service money so that we could actually work with them while feeding our families so forth when then we could have chosen a become a nonprofit and looked for philanthropic support um, but that has its own problems actually for the model that we' we were pursuing is we we have to inquire about where that philanthropic support kind of comes from and uh, what being dependent upon that might mean for us in terms of the kind of almost the energetics of reciprocity. So for us, the, you know, not the easiest pathway by any stretch, but the most beneficial one would be what if we could just intervene in the system by modeling a better way for capital to work for these high impact outcomes. And so that's the, what, what you're saying, Ryan, is lift 2.0, as you, as you know well.
0: Is, yeah, It's kind of... Yeah, this, this, this sort of terminology, but it's, it's helpful, I think, to think of it as like iterations. So the, the 3.0, it sounds like just from, is more, it, it looks like it's just a larger fund, right? A, a revolving loan fund. Can you describe what sort of that might mean for folks?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, it, it is more of a, yeah, a diff- another iteration on it, uh, an elaboration of this kind of the restructuring of the culture of capital, uh, taking the pilots of testing Lyft 2.0 and creating more evergreen structures where uh, there's an entry point in for investors or a pool of investors, maybe quote-unquote retail investors who can crowdfunding, so accessing different you know, asset classes in different parts of kind of the world of capital, kind of the public equity at large, and leveraging that into a fund that maybe still provides returns, but the returns could be cycled and revolved back into generating more beneficial impact and transformation of the economy. And so the 3.0, which, you know, as you know, Ryan, we're kind of teasing some of that right now. Um, It's still a little bit in the future, is kind of an exploration of what are the ideal models that could prioritize the outcomes we want to see at a little bit larger scale than the lift 2.0 and and different structures and you know as you know per our way of operating i can't tell you exactly what that looks like because there's a, a healthy amount of trial error sensing responding and and uh
0: development as we go yeah and this is uh so as we get into like lift 4.0 and 5.0, it's sort of very speculative, but you know, I like the idea of you and Sean sort of creating the, creating the, the detailed vision because I think it helps us navigate. So next economy coalition. So lift 4.0 is, is your said timeline here is five to 75 years. <laughs> I like that hedging. Um, <laughs> And this idea of emphasis on transactions between regional social enterprises, um, you broker relationships to stimulate a robust, replicable regional economy, you work on replicating it in other regions, um, coalition building. You know, One question listeners may have is, what's the beef that Lyft may have with something like 7th um, uh, Generation or or like... Patagonia, or or you know, like some of the companies that we think of as impact, there, you know, Seventh Generation isn't regional to Vermont, and Patagonia is is you know is not just a Ventura company. You know, they they sell everywhere. So sure. how does how does that uh, how do those types of companies fit into like what Lyft sees as the the future vision of the economy? Yeah. Well, the 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 vision, well, the role that those
1: organizations are playing kind of fits into this kind of story of transformation of the economy. Uh, one thing that we observe directly and might be self-evident to listeners who have seen this is when people kind of jump, if you, if you will, fully into reinventing the norms of culture or the economy, it becomes a pretty isolated, lonely space pretty quickly, um, maybe culturally invisible. There's very little personal security, very little resources. To, uh, if you're trying to engineer and test and experiment, or midwife in the kind of the new of what you see as possible. Um, in fact, the character of the the archetype of the, the person who kind of does that, um, they tend to be very courageous. Um, but sometimes uh, they uh, there's personality types that uh, create communication barriers, and uh, sometimes they they're a little bit thorny. Um, as characters, but uh, certainly courageous. And, and we celebrate that work. And uh, then there's kind of other approaches which are taking a stand for being a little bit closer to the norms of the existing economy, the business as usual economy, how enterprises typically function, but beginning to innovate and, and do things, maybe at first just a little bit less bad, and then you know aspiring further and further, reaching towards being, you know, maybe do no harm, uh, which is in and of itself very challenging to do within the constructs of the existing economy. And then moving towards how can we be, you know, slightly beneficial? How could we be, you know, very beneficial? How can we be totally beneficial? And there's, there's almost like a meeting point, I don't know if they ever meet, but where those people who have some of the entrepreneurs we worked with who are just starting raw, radical new structures and, and ways of doing, uh, providing needed goods and services. You know, people who are skeptical of even the term business uh, where that kind of uh, intersects with some of the seventh generations or Patagonias. And so right where the way lift holds that transformation or that, that, that what's happening is that these Patagonias and, uh, uh Namaste Solars, and uh, Seventh Generation, um, great organizations that are doing really, really important work by taking a stand for that less bad, or, you know, do no harm, or even as beneficial as possible economy, trying to model better behavior. What we see is, whereas if they're not the ultimate expression of the 500 year transition to an economy that works for the benefit of all life without compromise, their work today actually makes the midwifery, the challenging, the courageous work more visible and more resourced and more relevant and more accessible. So they are playing this fairly catalytic role. Um, and it turns out it's actually really, really challenging. We, As you know, Ryan, we've had a pleasure, the pleasure of working with some of these organizations and working with the leadership and finding the leadership kind of, instead of, thinking that they are the paragon of what is the best for regeneration or sustainability. I'm, I'm finding a a, a lot of humility and, and kind of expression like, yeah, we're doing our best, but we we know there's a long way to go. And you know, how could we, how could we go even further? How could we, how could we play this role of being a model? And so I, I, there is this, this is really critical role to play, uh, of these organizations that some of the, some of the B Corps, um, Ryan, that, that we work with uh, kind of uh, play this role where they're authentically aspiring to say, what can I do within the constructs of the economy to set a higher bar for impact um, and even measure it um, and, and create a community around it? I think that's really important work. This this 4.0 kind of, if you said there was these isolated, regionally replicable models of more ideal organizations that are perfect, if you will, or as close to perfect as possible, expressions of the principles of an economy that truly was working for the benefit of all life, uh, you know, their their power is very limited uh, compared to, you know, the business as usual economy, the, the Walmarts or the, the Nikes or whatever. And so by connecting them together, federating, creating a field where they are building themselves into su- supply webs or relational webs of providing needed goods and services in concert with each other, uh, again is one of the that's one of the critical pathways through the price parity paradox. And I guess I would just posit the way you asked the question: um, Patagonia, Seventh Generation, and such are making those fields the field of the next economy around say textiles like the fiber shed work that rebecca burgess is doing that field becomes more possible when patagonia or vf corporation or some of the organizations that have taken a stand to support some of that work um, as part of their impact um, that field becomes more possible so we've started doing some field building and lift 4.0 is going to it will emerge into a more concerted effort to create these federated networks of uh, organizations that are trying to reinvent the nature of the economy.
0: I think what's always surprised me is I used to, when I was younger, I used to assume that people would are already doing certain things like they like, Oh yeah, there's already a a group of Mm -hmm. investors who are getting together and talking about radical investments in women of color owned enterprises and that are not extractive in their or non-dilutive in their terms and you just see wow that doesn't really like i just have always been surprised at uh how much power there is and when someone has a good like a good idea to, to sort of how much power you have to bring it, it into the economy and sort of push it forward as opposed to just assuming that someone else has sort of got it covered <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I'm fully in accord with that, I'm just watching for those opportunities and yeah, not assuming that anybody else is doing it. And I think it's also the case that um, we're finding in the field building work that we're doing is where it is, whereas it might be true that it's not being done wholly or fully in a totally integrated way, um, I think there's an approach. Uh, sometimes I see people look at field building and see that as maybe something to own I think what I love about our lift team and the approach that we're engendering is this idea of like, okay, we don't need to own this. Um, how, what role, what what kind of facilitative role can we play in helping bring the field together? Because there are some people doing that piece and there's some people doing that piece, and you know, maybe they are communicating, maybe they're not. Let's test it. Let's let's set a convening and have a conversation that we'll check in. How how was that? Was that valuable? Were the were connections made? Were are any transactional relationships going to come of this that are going to benefit uh, in mutual support, everyone? Um, and tracking that and just almost being really curious about it. So far, the early indicators are that that's a very potent, that's going to be a potent part of what Lyft, uh, an expression of Lyft's value to, the, to, the, to our mission in, in the world, hopefully, is to, to play that
0: curious convener role. The old curious convener role. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's wrap, let's, let's wrap this vision. So we got lift 5.0, which is the next economy holding company. So it's um, described as a holding company for non-extractive exit for next economy companies. It could finance co-op conversions. There could be a local stock exchange. Can you just talk about like why, it, what is a holding company and what, sort of purpose would it provide in the next economy
1: well there's a nexus of kind of critical aspects when you think of the long-term trajectory of uh, growing or transforming into the an economy that works for the benefit of all life one of the toxic cultural norms of the business-as-usual economy is this idea of succession or exit um and creating uh you know wealth inequities uh, by the nature of how um equity accrues to, to enterprise um, and founders and owners and leaders um, rather than having the benefits from goods and services being created you know accrue to everyone um, or being more distributed more equitable and you know one of the missing pieces right now that we don't see as being addressed fully is what are the ways in which a organization or group of people could be providing needed goods and services in these non-compromising ways, being of authentic benefit to people and planet. And then as say the entrepreneurs or the people who started those organizations or grew those models, um, as they say, age out, um, what happens to the organization? Where does, how does it get owned? Um, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's cooperatively owned by the, by the workers or a multi-stakeholder, but what are the possible stakeholders? Um, And holding company is a rough kind of proxy for um, the various possible structures that might be able to hold uh, such entities so that their value and what they bring to uh, reinventing the economy, the value that they bring to the planet that that they bring to people can carry on. And we have some interesting ideas around that. Uh, We're, you know, of course, Jenny Kasson, one of our great partners at Lyft is is really brilliant in thinking about these novel structures. So we're very excited about some possibilities. And maybe it is, you know, local stock exchanges uh, in the long run that are different, where local equity holding, where local communities are, are the owners, or maybe it's just a federated set of multi stakeholder cooperatives, or maybe it's, you know, a business development corporation of a sort that's um, intersects with the existing economy a little bit, but also plays this new catalytic role. I think the the, the nature of succession is the, the question. One of the cultural norms that is just insidiously toxic to the to life right now is that in the affluent world, you have this terrific bind where personal security and the, and the strategies for personal security are normally centered around this idea of trying to accrue assets or wealth, you know, if you're owning land or, or having retirement savings and, and, and putting it into the market to generate passive income. And these strategies uh, very, you know, surreptitiously kind of uh, bind us into complicity in continued exploitation because of the way the economy is working right now, though because of its norms. And having holding entities or other structures that could enable and encourage people to rethink about, rethink, rethink personal security in different ways um, where maybe there's not the impetus to accrue wealth and ownership um, as the only means for security. Uh, I think that's one of the, that lift five is a little bit to the future, as you know. So we, we do talk about, think about it a lot all the time. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And, and we, we track, uh, all, all these lift one through five, as you know, Ryan, but maybe our podcast listeners don't, they're, they're co-emergent. So we stagger them out by number or as if it's sequential, but they, they definitely kind of come all at once. Um, just maybe a different pacing at different times. And the, uh, I'm excited about this idea of reinventing. So think of Lyft 5.0 as the reinventing of personal security strategies. You know, what would it look like in the economy if your your basic motivation for personal security was to you, reduce your cost of living by securing the resource, resiliency of food security, water security, energy security, and shelter, and loving relationships with your community in the place that you live so you could really invest as a participant in in the place that you are that you reside and abide. And that was your your strategy for personal security. Um, and you didn't have to think about savings or wealth or ownership. Um, you had more freedom to just be of ultimate expression of service to your community and really love people and connect and that that would provide for you. What would that look like if you just kind of ask that question and inquire thoughtfully without, you know, falling into cynicism and resignment because we're so far from that. Uh, There's some very creative work being done and I'm very excited for Lift 5.0. Boy, you're getting me
0: excited, Ryan. (laughs) I mean, I think the cynicism piece is important um, because a lot of the, the things folks feel or see in the news and experience in their daily lives and the things that we talk about maybe on this podcast or even in this vision or that we do at Lyft are so s- small, right? In mm-hmm. comparison to the problems. So how do, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? Is it just sort of like, well, I'm not just going to suck my thumb and hold, g- g- curl up into a fetus position. So, but like, how do you sort of reconcile the cynicism with like what you're also seeing as what's possible?
1: Yeah. I said, th- well, that's, that's a great, I mean, there's, I have a personal answer, I guess. And and I'd, I'd be hesitate. I'd hesitate to tell anybody what might work for them, but by sharing my own perspective, maybe it's helpful uh, or not. My, my perspective is, you know, by immersing myself in what is possible and moving it from the realms of science fiction and fantasy and ideas, but into practice and seeing the outcomes, the beneficial impacts, seeing an ecosystem regenerated, restored, and habitat thriving, and um, normalization of hydrologic cycles, and uh, fecundity of nature, and, and seeing human relationships, seeing people become healthy, and thriving, and transformed, personally transformed, and happy. Uh, when you see, seeing those outcomes happen even in small scale, even if it's micro, just being involved in that work on the data day, absorbed in it really day to day, uh, it's almost impossible not to be um, optimistic. Paul Hawken when, when I, one of our friends and allies used to say, uh, I'll, I'll very terribly paraphrase somebody used to say something like, um, you know if you're looking at the numbers uh, in culture, and you're feeling optimistic, then you're not looking at the numbers. But if you're working with people who are working on the solutions and on a day-to-day basis and you're not feeling optimistic, then you don't have a heartbeat. Uh, something like that. But the, the, this, uh, I think that's one way to cut through some of the resignment and cynicism is just to, frankly, get busy with uh, manifesting what's possible. And then the the question of like, how do you scale it? How does it really transform everything? In my experience, it it becomes more, the best words I could say is self-evident. The the, the possibilities suddenly appear as almost embarrassingly simple rather than like super complex and challenging. There's still still challenges, no doubt, but most of them are, um, you know, ego systemic challenges rather than physical barriers. Uh, and you know, no amount of forcing seems to be the the pathway through those barriers. It, it's almost like (laughs) inviting in the possibility that they could transform, you know, by themselves, not, not because just because you want them to, because you've created space for them to, um, I know that sounds almost, uh, wishful and, and, uh, maybe naive and, you know, it may, it may be, uh, but if it's something that provides energy and motivation and creates, um, you know, the enormous wealth of happiness and joy that comes from being of service to life, uh, then, you know, I'm happy to be somewhat naive in that way. Uh, staying connected with people and possibility creating a language of possibility um, in my experience, it, it, it stays, it keeps me imagining that things are very generative, um, you know, and, you know, acknowledging that <laughs> I think everybody on the lift team, right. Has their days where some of the cynicism and some of this, this, just the incredible grief and suffer, uh, sadness of what's happening uh, um, sinks in and, and then having mechanisms to, Catch ourselves and reconnect, and um, it's really through people and allies creating a field, you know, a place to go where it's okay to express that, and then refocus and uh, find that place of joyful service. Um, and I, I also, you know, one more thing, Ryan, for me, you know, maybe know this about me, but for the listeners, and again, this is just my personal take: is I'm not attached attached to the outcome, right? if we don't make it to the 500-year plan uh, of an economy that works for the benefit of all life, obviously, like, I, I'm i driven by that possibility and I'm excited by it. And if we don't make it, it it's, you know, it's okay or that's not why we're doing it. Um, one of my colleagues uh, in permaculture, at the Urban Permaculture Institute, David Cody, he says, you know, if it's not fun, it's not sustainable. So I think finding the joy in pursuing a vision of a world that works for everyone with no one left out where where that's where that's authentically joyful that is i think for me the cleanest cut through of the cynicism it's like it's all, all of a sudden these really dramatic problems are you know it's almost like we created them for the the joy of untangling them i mean that's that's maybe an overcorrection but it's something like that
0: can you can you point folks to Resources that have inspired you to sort of take that uh, the higher road and sort of not feel too I mean project drawdown probably looking at solutions to climate change Charles Eisenstein sacred economics like who are who are some of the the sort of foundational like if folks maybe are know about next economy or they're interested in it what are some like foundational resources they should maybe look to to kind of learn more about what's possible in the space
1: Yeah, I mean, so in some way you mentioned, um, yeah, the work, the work of of Paul Hawken and Charles Eisenstein, but there's 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 really a lot. So it's it's um, for for me personally, um, I've been inspired by the permaculture movement in general, uh, David Holmgren, uh, his writing uh, and thinking, and I was at the distinct privilege of learning from him as a uh, student or so that the whole pedagogy of permaculture has deeply influenced me in seeing the world as a litany of possibilities and solutions. Uh, there's, you know, some authors that, uh, you know, everybody from Jane Jacobs to Marjorie Kelly uh, to the Margulis and, and others that just have resonated over time, sharing a vision uh, for that have inspired this possibility um, of a world that's different. Uh, Schumacher comes to mind. Um, I'm going to start looking around my room and look look at the <laughs> look at the books on my shelf. Uh, but those definitely Charles Charles Eisenstein I think is one of the more erudite thinkers today thinking about kind of the economy and and culture and those intersections. Yeah, those are. Those are some, I mean, there's, and, you know, I think if I were to talk about like the, some of the authors or writers or thinkers who are past, but who really inspire kind of the worldview that enables that, I think, I I guess, really lights up my focus on service would be, you know, Joseph Campbell or Alan Watts or even Robert Anton Wilson and some of those characters, Uh, their perspective, I think, it had, provides a lot of freedom for me to feel uh, excited about uh, transformation and different possibilities. So there, there, are some of my intellectual heroes. Awesome. What about you, Ryan?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Frederick Laloux. Mm-hmm. Reinvent the organizations. So good. Uh, yeah, I, I, just a lot of classical literature. Like, oh man. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. Sometimes I find inspiration in um, sort of not reading about the solution, like not doing too much nonfiction. Sort of like in it, trying to find solutions. Like I think part of the value is also sort of like stepping back and uh, you know into into like some of the classical uh, fiction. So you know, like even like Huckleberry Finn and like uh, you know like Tom Sawyer. Like so that it just like. Um, I'm just really inspired by like you know classics that sort of take you away from sometimes like being too immersed in problems. <laughs> so, I just thought of another one. Um, oh gosh, and it's
1: just just in my in my in my favorite uh, economist. Um, she worked on kind of uh, commons theory. And gosh, and I'm and now I'm forgetting her name, but uh, I'm sure, Andrew will. Put it in the, uh,
0: the podcast comments. The other so, one, Sean, Sean Baird would want us to mention is probably Prout's progressive utilization theory. Absolutely,
1: Prout is very inspiring. So, actually, one more um, uh, Ernest Callenbach um, with uh, Ecotopia and Ecotopia emerging—very inspiring for me. Nice.
0: Well, maybe uh, next actions we need to have a next economy reading list because I think uh, folks might benefit from that. Maybe it'll come from our next economy MBA course coursework. But well, thanks, Kevin. Um, it's been a pleasure. I Can't believe it's been hundred episodes. It's been uh, you know we never intended the podcast to be. It was always sort of an internal communication tool for the Lyft team of like, what are you doing? Oh yeah, what are you doing? So now it's uh, it's turned into interviewing amazing people. So hopefully here's the next hundred episodes. (laughs) Yeah. I am. I'm I'm in,
1: I'm, uh, I've been delighted with people writing in and uh, as we're out speaking or sharing that they're, that they're finding value in hearing these stories. um, That was one of our intentions is just to share the stories from the field of what's actually happening to make sure that people who are, trying this stuff, experimenting with manifesting the next economy that they feel connected to a larger movement. And, you know, there are those thought leaders I just remembered her name, Eleanor Ostrom. (laughs) There's Eleanor, there's Buckminster Fuller. There's all these heroes and heroines who have come before us and, and, you know, provided just an enormous amount of inspiration and, and possibility. And there's just so many people around the world who are creating these things. I think if we can, you know, for another 100, 200, 300, 500 more episodes and just feature their stories. And if that creates more connection to build this field, then I'll be very satisfied that uh, this is a service. Um, But for any listeners out there, if you haven't yet uh, commented on however you're accessing this podcast and sharing with us what you'd like to hear more of, who you'd like to hear from, that's something that uh, I'd really love to hear from you all to make sure that we're continuing to create value.
0: Thanks, Kevin. So check us out, uh, lifteconomy.com, L I F T economy.com. And if you want to see the podcast and previous episodes, lifteconomy.com slash podcast. Thanks for being on the show, Kevin. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's l i f t economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lift slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.